Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke again today, chapter 10. Kind of keep it open there. We'll be working through these verses kind of together today. I don't have them on the slide, so you'll need your Bible. If you don't have one and you want to follow along, there's one in the pew in front of you. You're more than welcome to use. We started last week just kind of uh, an on-purpose kind of series leading up to Easter <clears throat> called Following Jesus All the Way to the Cross. And the idea is that, you know, one of Jesus or Jesus' greatest accomplishment, His purpose was to go to the cross to to bring salvation to the world. This was His purpose, His greatest accomplishment, uh, to die in our place for us so that we uh, would have a right or could have a right relationship with God. And that as followers, if we follow a guy who that was his greatest purpose, then in some way we have the same purpose. And we kind of had a theme verse that says, if you're going to follow me, you may remember this verse. She says, anyone who wishes to follow me must take up his cross daily and follow me. If you're not taking up your cross, you're not worthy to be my disciple. You can't be my disciple. And so last week we looked at what the cost was, some of that cost of following Jesus um, as the disciples were led to an uncomfortable place, as they were rejected, as they had to deal with the humility of not kind of bringing justice on those uh, people who had rejected Jesus as he was moving to Jerusalem. So he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Then there was an encounter with three would-be uh, disciples, and, and each one of them were kind of confronted with a different cost they would have to pay, you know, some kind of personal sacrifice, personal priority, personal relationships, you know, and, and to follow Christ. So it's interesting. So right after that's where we're picking up. We're picking up in the very next set. Section. So after Jesus has dealt with these disciples, and especially these three would-be disciples, and kind of the sentiment of that passage is Jesus confronts them, you know, they're, that they're going to have to make these sacrifices to follow him, and, and none of them seem to do that. They kind of, I think the, the kind of the, the flavor of that is that they go, oh, well, never mind, and they turn and, and would not follow Jesus or didn't follow Jesus. The scripture doesn't specifically say that, but I think that's kind of the, the conclusion we draw. Right after that is where we pick up. <clears throat> That's what it says in verse 1 of chapter 10. Now, after the Lord appointed, after that, after this, after those three that he had invited, some saying they would follow, some he had invited himself, right after that, he appoints 70 others uh, and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city where he himself was going to come. And so remember, they're moving from uh, from Galilee, heading to Jerusalem. He had sent some of his disciples to make place for him in Samaria, and they were rejected. Uh, these would-be disciples come along, and they kind of turn away. And Jesus says, I got 70 more. He, he, he gathers another group of disciples. Uh, this is what we often refer to as the little-d disciples, not the apostles, not the twelve. But there's a group of people who are following Jesus, and he gets 70 of them. He pairs them up in teams, so there's 35 teams, right? And he sends them out and says, you go and prepare for me where I'm getting ready to come. Jesus is moving, and he's going to visit, you know, at least 35 different places, apparently. And so he sends these people to, to make prepare, preparations for him to come and visit these places as he's on his way to Jerusalem. And so what we're going to talk about today is the responsibility we have as disciples uh, to, as we follow Jesus to the cross. They're on their way to Jerusalem. They're on the way to the cross. Uh, some are following him. Now he's sending some out. And, and there's a responsibility we have as Jesus followers to prepare the way of the Lord. So 
First, I think what we see is there is a responsibility. There's, there's some task that God has us as followers, that we're, we're not just called to just follow and keep following, but He, he has a, a plan for us. He has some tasks for us to do, a, a responsibility for us to, to, to remember. How many of you can remember your first, and I'll call it this way, your first blessed responsibility? And what I mean by that is not the first responsibility you had as a child, not the first thing that your parents asked you to do, not, you know, it's your responsibility to clean your room, you know, or it not, it's your responsibility to take out the trash, not that kind of responsibility. The kind of responsibility, I, I call it a blessed responsibility because it was a, it was a responsibility that was given to you, but it was also an affirmation of who you were. It was a responsibility of trust. You know, that somebody say, I trust you with something important. It's a responsibility that, uh, that, that kind of made you feel properly proud that, that somebody really has it, you know, something, it says something about who you are that someone would give you this responsibility. My first one, I'll be quite honest with you, was simply cutting the grass. Now that doesn't seem like much, and for some that might be one of those yucky responsibilities, but for me, this was a blessed responsibility because there was two things my dad really cared about when I was a kid. One was his grass and the second was his lawnmower. He really cared about those things. He worked hard in our yard. We, I remember when we moved to our first pastorate, his first pastorate in Bonley, North Carolina, which is just out Siler City, outside Siler City. And the reason I tell you that is because some of you may know a lady named Aunt B. She lived right there close to us in those days. That's where she was from, from Mayberry. So we moved basically to Mayberry. And the, and the church lawn and the parsonage lawn, it was, well, kind of like the grass is in northwest Pennsylvania this time of year. Brown. Uh, it's not supposed to be that color in North Carolina in the spring. It's, but it's the color it was. So he, he worked on the lawn. He reseeded the lawn. He had trucks. This is quite honest. He had trucks of chicken manure dumped on the lawn so that it would grow and grow it did. It was green as green could be and it needed mowing sometimes two and three times a week depending on how much rain we got because of the heavy fertilizer he used on it. And then he loved his snapper lawnmower. I think it was his respite. It was his his way of just kind of getting away. And, and he would mow that lawn religiously. He had a certain pattern, a certain way. He was very particular about these things. And then I remember the day he came to me and said, Son, I'm going to teach you to mow the lawn. And he, and he went through this whole lesson of how I was to check the gas and how I was to check the oil. I was to check the grass to make sure it was dry enough because we would not mow grass if it was too wet because it would clump up and it wouldn't spread out properly. And so there was all these conditions and then you could get on the lawnmower and he showed me the proper way to go around the lawn this direction and cut here first and cut there because he had his whole system. And he taught me that. And then one day, I remember the day, he's like, okay, Jason, I gotta work late today. I mean, he was still in school. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be in school late today. The, the grass needs mowing. You're gonna be here alone. You mow the grass. <sighs> Me? On the snapper? By myself? The grass? What a responsibility it was. I was, I felt like I had finally reached manhood. I had come of age. Watch out, world. Here I was. 
And I did it everything like he said he, like he told me to do and did it right. And he got home that day and he was pleased and all that. But I remember that great responsibility. This wasn't clean your room responsibility. This wasn't wash the dishes responsibility. This was a, a blessed responsibility. This is a responsibility I bore with pride and with vigor and with excitement and, and just ready to do it and couldn't wait to follow it. This is the kind of responsibility we're talking about today as followers. That Jesus gives this same kind of blessed responsibility to us. That we should be excited and, and think about what God is giving us. This, this opportunity that He's blessing us with to serve Him and serve in His name. So what is the responsibility? Scott read it. It's go, but it's a little bit more than go. We know the go part from, from Matthew chapter 28. Go into all the world and make disciples, right? Baptizing and teaching. Well, this one he says differently there in verse 2. And he said to them, he's going to send them. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the field. Go, behold, I send you out as as uh, lambs in the midst of wolves. But the go is to go and and prepare the way of the Lord. Go to the cities where I'm coming and prepare the people to receive me. I'm coming behind you. You go prepare them for my coming. And I think when we realize that that's our responsibility is to go out and prepare people to meet the Lord. Prepare people to hear the Lord. Prepare people to receive the Lord. That, that we're not the Lord. They don't need to receive us as much as the one who's coming behind us. And our simple job is to go prepare the way of the Lord. And he gives two steps to this responsibility. I think there's just two things we need to do. to, If we're to live up this responsibility, like my dad, he taught me how to check the lawnmower and get it prepared and check the grass and make sure it was ready, that there's a couple of steps into living up this responsibility. Step one, very simple. Pray. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We will not be successful in preparing the way of the Lord if we don't pray first. Step one. I was struck by this this week, to be quite honest with you. And to be honest with you, I can't go any further. I kind of got stuck on this step one. And I wondered, are we doing this? I mean, we pray a lot. But are we praying for people to receive the Lord who's coming to visit them? Are we praying regularly for the lost? We pray regularly for the sick. We pray regularly for the needy. I even know that this church one time since I've been here over the last seven years, we had a prayer vigil where we called the church together to pray for a particular need. We had, y'all remember, may remember it was a 24 hour prayer wheel. We've done that once since I've been here. Interestingly enough, it was we were praying for our finances and that God would meet our financial needs. Interestingly enough, since we prayed for that, we've had no financial need. And that was like five years ago that, that our finances seem to keep doing fine. Although even our numbers are dropping, our finances seem to keep going up. Try to explain that one. It might have something to do with prayer. And so that brought me to the conviction is if we pray to the Lord of the harvest about the harvest and for harvesters, 
If he's as faithful to us in that prayer as he has been to our prayer of finances, what might happen if we did that? And so today, step one, we're going to pray. Today, after the service, I'll be in Randy's office as quick as I can get there to simply pray for the loss of Clarion. Pray for the loss in your lives. Pray for the loss in your families and your friends and in your workplaces. It's a, it's, I think it's a simple, small step. And it will delay you if you participate in that a little bit. And it will be inconvenient. And it's not at the best time. I understand all that. And you might have to wait for me. Or you can go ahead and pray before I get there if I, after I greet people. But it's step one in preparing the way of the Lord. And so if you want to join me, feel free after the service, Randy's office. If we fill that place up, we'll find somewhere else to go. And we'll pray for the lost. If you want someone to be prayed for, in your pew is this little card. It's a, it's a worship of commitment. And you can just put, pray for my friend, pray for my coworker, pray for my son, pray for my daughter, pray for my mother. You don't have to give a whole name. Pray for a mother who lives in such and such a city or a father who is in such and such a place or, or however you want to. You can put names down if you want to. And if you get these to me, I'll take them back there and we'll pray for people that you know that you're concerned about. There's never been a revival or a spiritual awakening in the world that wasn't first braved in prayer. Church history tells us that. And so if we're going to be serious about the loss, if we're going to be serious about living, listening to the Lord, this is really step one. And so I invite you, encourage you, ask you, let's just be obedient and pray to the Lord of the harvest. He says it's plentiful. We need more laborers. Step two, then, once we do this, what's going to step two be? Well, it's the simple part. It's the step two. Go. You know, it's step two. Step to it. We simply need to go wherever we go. I'm afraid there was a time in church history when our motivation, when our goal, when our when our thinking, when our method was uh, y'all come. And, and what we tried to get people to do is just go where you're at and invite people to come to the church. Those days may be passing by us. And it's going to be a whole lot more like it was in the original church about us going uh, a lot more than them coming. Now, I think eventually if we can take them and God meets them, then God will probably bring people to worship together because that's his command. But I think the y'all coming in is going to be later. It's going to be much more dependent on us going out. And meeting people in the, in the byways and in the streets and in their homes and in the workplace and in the public square, wherever. And if you notice, that's what Jesus was often doing. That many of the conversions that Jesus has are by the well, you know, by the river, in the marketplace, wherever he could find people hiding up a tree in this place or that place. That, that it is this going out that we must do. It is the, like Gene said, to take our light into this world. Don't turn the light off when you leave, but you know, that's the time to turn it on. And so this is our responsibility. This is a great responsibility. This is my cut in the grass kind of responsibility that God says, you are my disciples. Let me give you this wonderful, blessed responsibility to go before me and prepare the way of the Lord. That you are in a very small kind of way, your own John the Baptist, one crying out, prepare ye the way of the Lord who will follow now, the bad news, there's just some bad news, good news to this, to this idea. And we've already heard this part where he says, 
Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. That's not necessarily the greatest picture, the prettiest picture for us to realize. It, it is a difficulty. It is an uncomfortableness. That Jesus understands the responsibility that we have isn't one that's easy to carry out and isn't really comfortable to carry out. That, that there's some danger, there's some, some sacrifice with this and that, that He realizes what we're up against when He says, go and prepare the way for me. But what I really want to talk about today is the good news. Is that there's also some good news in this passage as we look at it. There's six encouragements that Jesus gives his followers to remember or to follow so that they don't stop going. So that they keep on going. And there's these six encouragements I want us to look at so as we prepare to live up to this blessed responsibility. What is it you're going to need to keep going? Because it is as lambs among wolves. It is an adversity. And so Jesus kind of says several things here that encourages us. The first one, go, trusting in the Lord's provision. Starting with verse uh, 4, it says, Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes. Greet no, uh, greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house eating and drinking what they give you. Uh, the laborer is worth his wages. Does not keep moving from house to house. Jesus is telling these, these 70 people he's sending out, look, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. In that day, uh, it was a, a subsistence kind of living. They needed each day their bread. They didn't have refrigerators to, to store up a week's worth of food. And so Jesus is telling them, don't worry, I am going to meet your needs, whatever they are. I'm going to meet your physical needs for sure, that you will be taken care of. And so you can go out trusting me, trusting God's provision. The misbelief is that we can't. For us today, it's not so much food that we worry about. You've probably got enough for the week at home. It's not the clothing that we worry about. So, so what kind of provision is it that we need? We have this misbelief, I'm afraid, that we can't do this. That we can't go prepare the way of the Lord. That we're not equipped to do this. That we are unable to talk to people about Jesus or, or, or share our faith with them or encourage them to think about who Jesus is. And it often keeps us from feeling our blessed responsibility. It holds us back. I can't do this. Imagine if I said, Dad, I know you want me to cut the grass, but I, I just can't do it. I don't know how to turn it on. You know, yeah, you showed me. Yeah, you told me. Yeah, you you got the gas there for me. I don't know how to get the gas in the tank. You know, I know it's there, but I don't know how to put it in there. We sound very much like Moses did in Exodus chapter 4 when he said, Lord, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither uh, either recently or in times past, since you have spoken to your servant. For I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Moses is like, you, I can't do this. you got to find somebody else. I'm not able. And God said, no, you're just the guy I want. Like I said, he's talking about the, the physical needs of these disciples but he also promises to meet our needs. Whatever it is we need, that God will provide. If God gives us a task, he will provide. In Luke chapter 21, it says, This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give 
you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. That what you need, God will provide. Like my dad, he wanted me to cut the grass. He provided the lawnmower. He provided the oil. He provided the gas. I didn't have a job. I couldn't buy any of that stuff. He had everything I needed right there. He provided the key to the lawnmower, showed me how to use it. All I had to get on and go. So as you think about this responsibility, what is it you need? What do you think you need? What what provision do you need? And do you believe God will give that to you? He promises He will. And so when you see a need, don't give up going. Just turn to the Lord for the provision. The second encouragement is looking for those who are receptive. It says in verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 8. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to your feet, will wipe off and protest against them. Yet be sure that the kingdom of God has come near. I think one of the things that really encourage us, for, for many we have thought of speaking to people about God is uncomfortable. When we start talking about talking to people about who God is and what you believe in Him, we get uncomfortable. And another obstacle that ha- hampers us from carrying out this blessed responsibility is really, quite honestly, the frustration we have when we find people who turn away from the truth, who reject who Jesus is, and maybe even ridicule the message we have. And, and there's a real frustration as we try to talk to people and they turn a deaf ear over and over and over. Sometimes we even start to prejudge people thinking things like, well, they just won't be interested, so I don't even need to waste my time. Or they've already heard about Jesus a number of times and they've already made up their minds and so I shouldn't do it again. And so one of the things that the Bible says here is that there will be some who will accept and some who will not. And we have to settle that within ourselves, that there will be some receptive to the message, to the preparation that we try to make, and there will be some who don't. And that's the but, the great big but. But some will receive. Some will receive. And maybe in that prayer, that step one that we're talking about, not only will we pray for those, but maybe we should pray, God, give me eyes to see the opportunities you have for me. Give me eyes to see where you're already working. This is you at work anyway. Help me to see those who will be receptive so that I give my attention, so that I respond in the receptive moments and not just the frustrating rejection moments. Help me to see where you're already working. Think about it. If we were to pray this, if we were to pray this way, if God wants people saved, which the Bible makes clear he wants people saved. And if God answers prayer, especially prayers prayed in accordance with his will, which the Bible makes clear he answers prayer prayed in accordance with his will and his will is for people to get saved. If we say, Lord, I'm praying, help me find those people you want to save. If we pray that, can't we expect God to answer aren't we praying in his will for his heart for those things he wants and says help me see those people who i can prepare the way for you to come you've already set in your mind you're coming god knew where he was going he sent the people out ahead of him to the places he was planning on going god just show me where you're planning on going 
Help me see those who you're going to be receptive to and who you're coming to visit so I can help make ready your way. The question then is, if God will answer this, the question are, is, where do you see God working? Who's that person in your life you kind of keep coming into some kind of encounter with? You know, and every time you, you're talking to this person, church or God or, or something comes up. You know, who's that person that, that you kind of feel like God keeps putting on your heart? Why do I keep running into this person over and over and over? And I feel this stirring in with me that I, that I should say something. Who is a person who you God's put in your life that has a particular need, a particular ministry, some kind of way that only you can meet or you might be called to meet to, to share with them this truth? <coughs> and if we don't see that person, the question we must ask is, are we looking? Are we looking for them? Are we looking around? God, give me eyes to see where you're working so that I can serve you. This is a blessed responsibility, Father. Help me see where the grass needs trimming. Help me see where I can serve you. The other encouragement is to go overcome with compassion. Verse 12, I say to you, it will be more tolerable. This is those who have rejected the message. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the day of Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, uh, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethesda. For the miracles have been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you. They would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. What is the motivation for going? What is the motivation for filling this great responsibility? To be sure, it is much, 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 much more important than cutting my dad's grass. This is eternity that we're talking about. These disciples are are being confronted with the truth of those who reject Jesus are accepting hell. And I wonder sometimes why this thought of going and living this responsibility is is so unimportant seemingly today. Here's what Barna told Barna Research looked in December of, of 2013. When asked if they had a personal responsibility to share their faith with others, 73% of born again Christians said yes. Okay, so we're just lost was that 27% who don't even think they have a responsibility to share their faith. When the conviction of this is put into practice, however, the number shifts downward. Only 52% of born and Christians say they actually did share the gospel at least once in the past year to someone with different beliefs in hope that they might accept Jesus as their Savior. As of 2.13, half of born-again Christians practiced the going and preparing the way of the Lord. And I wondered, why is that, that's not a really encouraging number, and why? What was it that these Jesus followers were embracing and not embracing this blessed responsibility? I consider that it might be connected to some other research Bonner did, which tells us only 71% of born-again Christians believe there is such a thing as hell. 
There's nothing to really people to get saved from. Most Americans do not accept, uh, do not expect to experience hell firsthand. When, when, uh, surveyed, only one half of one percent of people said they were going to hell. That's a sad number there. Nearly two thirds of Americans, 64 percent, believe they will go to heaven. Only 20 adults, 5% claim they will come back, 20% or 5% claim they will come back as another life form. Um, and some 5% contend they will simply cease to exist. That the thought of the afterlife, of heaven and hell, aren't there anymore. And the whole idea of this blessed responsibility is to save people from what the Bible clearly teaches. That there is heaven and hell. Among those who expect to go to heaven, there was no, there were differences in how they anticipated such an end would be attained. Nearly half of those who say they're going to heaven bound, 43%, believe they go to heaven because they confessed their sins and accepted Jesus as their Savior. Others felt they were going to heaven because they had tried to obey the Ten Commandments, 15%. Another 15% believed they were going to heaven because they were, well, basically a good person. And only 6% believed they would enter hell because they were based on the fact that God loves everybody and wouldn't punish anybody. And so the fact, when I say we need to be overcome with compassion, is I think we need to contemplate people's fate. When we look at the world, what is their forever future? And if that isn't motivation for us to go prepare the way of the Lord, I don't know what it will be. Just some thoughts on hell. The one thing that I don't know much, I know what the Bible teaches, that God's not there. And then it's a complete absence of God. And so think about this. If hell's a place where it's the absolute absence of God, then it's evil because God is good. And if God's not there, then all matter of evil must be there. It's like light. It's like light Miss Jean was talking about. There's no such thing as darkness. Darkness is only the absence of light. You measure darkness by the absence of light. You measure, you measure coldness. There's no such thing as coldness. Coldness is the absence of heat. And so what is a place that's completely absent of all good? Because their God who is good is not there. What is a place that is the absence of all hope? Because God is all hope. If he's not there, then it's crushing because there is no hope in that place. What is a a pleasant that is absent of all pleasure? Because all good things, all pleasurable things come from God. And if He's absent, there is no pleasure in that place. That's torment. What is a place that is absent of all light? If God is light and He's completely absent from that place, then it's absolute darkness. What is a place where there is absolute absence of companionship? God has relationships within Himself. He is a companion. And when he's absent, you're completely and utterly alone. A dark, tormenting, crushing, evil place where you're absolutely alone. Why would we share better news than that? If we take moments to contemplate what their forever future may be, this is the motivation we need to live up to this great responsibility. The other one, go overcome with compassion, go exercising personal humility. Jesus makes it clear. And the one who rejects me, uh, 
I'm sorry, the one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And who, who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. We must remember when we go out preparing the way of the Lord, it's not about us. But we can't get discouraged when we are rejected. We can't take it personally. They're not rejecting us. They're not rejecting our message. They're rejecting our Savior. And we get discouraged because we want production. We want what we call success. We want to see results. And our job is not production, success, and results. Our job is to go and prepare the way. And so what if you don't succeed? What if you only ever prepare one person to receive the Lord? What if you're rejected over and over and over? Then we should be overcome with compassion, exercise our personal humility and say, it's not me, it's the Lord whom they're rejecting. And remember, it's all about Jesus. We need to go reliant on God for courage. The 70, after they come back to Jesus, they're filled with joy. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. That God says, when you go on my behalf, you can go in courage because you go in my name. We see lots of fear and our fear and it's just plain and obvious. Our fears hamper us from living up this responsibility. It's uncomfortable. It's unnerving. We feel like we can't do it. We just need to remember whose side we're on and who's on our side. (laughs) They're amazed that they can do this. And Jesus said, what? I was watching Satan when he fell. I saw it happen. I was there before him. I'm greater than he is. Don't have to worry about your enemy as long as you're sheltered under my wings. And so the thought of going and talking to people about Christ, what fear do you face? And do you have faith that God will provide and look out for you to overcome that fear? He promises He will. And the final, go motivated with grateful hearts. When they're all excited about what they can do, this is what Jesus, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Do not rejoice in all this provision and protection and All these things you've done in my name, that's not even what you're supposed to get excited about. Get excited about this. Be happy about this. Your name is recorded in heaven. The fact of the matter is duty and obligation and requirements are poor motivations for us to live up to our responsibilities. When I speak of responsibilities at home, my kids think laundry and doggy poop detail and clean their rooms and such as that. And they usually meet that with groans and moans. And maybe we meet this responsibility similar ways. But remember, what an awesome responsibility. Jesus said, go before me because I'm coming behind you. Go and prepare my way. He trusts you. He affirms you. He believes in you. And he's given you a blessed responsibility to feel on his behalf. And it's a truth of the matter that, that we're only taking and offering what we've already received. And it is with grateful hearts that we go because God has already been gracious to us. And so as we think about that, 
What is it you're grateful for? What is that motivation that will move you? I want to give one quick example of how this happened. The year was 1850. Uh, somewhere in England, I think Essex, there was a snowstorm. Snowstorm that bound a pastor to his home that morning and somehow a lay minister, a lay person in the congregation got the call. You need to fill the pulpit this morning. It's now your responsibility because of the great snowstorm. There was a young 15-year-old man on his way to church that morning and because of the storm and the blizzard, he couldn't make it to his regular church. And so as he ducked down one back alley trying to get out of the storm, he, he stepped into this little Methodist church there in Essex and sat back in the back row. He was a, one of maybe 12 or 15 people that morning. This layman got up that morning and he read from Isaiah chapter 45, 22, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. His inability to preach was evident because uh, this young man said he would keep repeating the verse over and over and over and he kept stretching it out for some 10 minutes just trying to add a little bit there he was even kind of made fun of because he couldn't even pronounce the words correctly during that time but in those moments there in that service that morning this minister who stood there realized that this young man was struggling with the Lord and he turned to him and called to him and said, young man, you look miserable and you will remain miserable until you give the Lord his place in your life. Receive the salvation of the Lord. And the young man said, at that moment, the gates of heaven opened up to him. The, the clarity of belief was to him and he accepted by faith Jesus as his Savior. At that moment, it all made sense. That young man was Charles Spurgeon. And he would go on to preach to thousands and thousands and thousands of people the reality of hell and the simple truth of the gospel that there is salvation in Jesus alone and heaven awaits those who believe in him. The man who preached that morning, nobody knows. Spurgeon himself has commented he's thankful that he doesn't know the man's name because he can't even attribute his own salvation to another man, but he knows it was wholly the work of God that saved him. But he knows that that man prepared the way of the Lord that morning. Did he pray before he stepped in the pulpit that morning? I most certainly think he probably did. As the call came in at last minute, you're filling the pulpit, Congratulations. Did he lean on the Lord's provision? Yes. He looked for the Lord's opportunity to bring this young man. He turned to the Lord's word and kept repeating the word of the Lord over and over. Turn to me and be saved. And he trusted the Lord to give him what uneloquent, simple words he needed to convey that truth. Was his message one of compassion? Yes, because he was calling for the lost to be saved. He realized their forever future and hoped something better for them. Was he humble? I guess he was because we don't even know his name. We have no one to attribute this great work to. Just some man in 1850 who filled a pulpit. Maybe he was a tailor or a cobbler or a shoemaker or, or something. But no one knows. Was he courageous? Most certainly he was. He even had the courage to see where God was working in a young man's life that morning and called to him right there in front of everybody. And the young man responded. What a blessed responsibility he bore that day. 
Could it be that that's the responsibility God has for us? That some little unknown moment to speak up on His behalf, some little never-to-be-remembered-again moment when we share the truth of who Jesus is to somebody might affect another Charles Spurgeon or like Mordecai Ham affected Billy Graham. Or maybe it will just be that one person who meets us at the pearly gates one day and says, thank you. Thank you for living up to your blessed responsibility. Thank you for fulfilling that one blessed thing God asked you to do. This is our responsibility of following Jesus, no matter what the cost, all the way to the cross.